Hello and welcome back to, once again, another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray, and welcome to episode 12, I believe. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking just about some astronomy and astrophysics facts about the universe. And if you guys can notice, I indeed have got a brand new microphone, which is making me sound so good. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> much, much better than the Apple earbuds that you were using oh, before so much better so much better awesome so uh let's get started from the very beginning and by that i mean Ooh. the big bang or what is also known as the beginning of the universe theory as we because know. we can't we can't actually prove it but it is very very probable that it happened it is simply the most common or used theory in today's universe because it's the most conclusive so the big bang theory for those who don't know i think everyone might know who's listening to this podcast but a, a very interesting thing about the big bang even though the name suggests bang it wasn't actually much of an explosion as it was of an expansion because or at least how we model the early universe we model it using a point particle or a singularity known as the initial singularity, that had energy fluctuations within it. These fluctuations then formed or forced this singularity to therefore expand into the universe we know today. I was reading a book on, uh, on like, the, there was one chapter on the Big Bang, and there was a theory about anti-matter and anti-gravity. Mm -hmm. And basically, and the theory was that... Um, like antimatter could only exist in like high stress situations, you know, like high temperature, <laughs> high pressure, high density. Mm -hmm. And basically when the Big Bang occurred, there was enough antimatter anti in the universe, which was like very, very small at the time, to expand the universe and to keep it accelerating for mm -hmm. well it's 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 impossible to know for how long but for a very long time but shortly after the big bang occurred all the antimatter or most of it in the universe just dissipated because of the evolving conditions of the universe mm -hmm. and also one uh interesting thing that i should say uh, uh i should point out what you said um so the the interesting thing about antimatter is that when the universe was created there should have been equal counts matter and equal counts antimatter, right? It makes sense. However, what we see in the universe today, or at least what we can observe, we do not see that whatsoever. We just see mainly amounts of matter. And that's known as baryon asymmetry. It's this theory that really no one has been able to figure out an answer for why, but it just happens that antimatter, for some reason that's unexplainable as of right now, just doesn't exist. Or if it does, as you said, it exists only in extreme conditions. But the fact of the matter is, if the universe did expand, and when the particles and quarks were being created, there should have been equal parts matter and equal parts antimatter. But that just didn't happen. And that's this huge theory, and I would definitely recommend searching up baryon asymmetry just to search up more about this really interesting fact about you know why the universe is just not equal. And here's a question for you, Ray. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the universe is symmetrical on very large scales? When you say symmetrical, 
what do you mean? Yeah, so so when you when you zoom in, right, to let's say our solar system, mm-hmm. obviously there's no symmetry. Yes. Right? And then we zoom out to our galaxy, still no symmetry there. But I'm talking about massive cosmic superstructures mm-hmm. in the universe. If you zoom out to basically have like a god's eye view on the universe, mm-hmm. would it do you think yeah. it, it would be s- symmetrical on every every aspect of the word well technically uh galaxies by themselves can also like spiral galaxies especially uh, well it kind of depends on also how you're defining symmetrical if you mean like you know circulatory symmetrical stuff like that then i guess a galaxy could also be thought it that way right i'm talking about like like kind of like a crystalline structure you know like it's like a like a snowflake like it's just Mm. it's just so perfect that you need you mm-hmm. need to zoom in incredibly or an, an incredible amount to see any type of asymmetry that we see on our on our level of existence because we are very small yet very big mm-hmm. if you if you know what I mean. <laughs> exactly yeah so th- the interesting thing about that is that in small scales yeah there really doesn't exist much symmetry because we can't see it but then we also have to differentiate between the observable universe and what the universe actually is right because what many people think is all we see is what's there but that's just not true because as time passes on light from distant galaxies that we have never seen before that is still traveling towards us light from there hits us as time moves on so as time goes further and further our observable universe increases Right. That can also be explained by, um, so um, this is a Galilean theory, I think, okay? And he postulates that um, the fabric of space-time between two points in the universe, you know, because the universe is expanding, Mm -hmm. the further away that the two points are, the faster that space-time is expanding between them. So there are points in the universe that are so far away from each other that space-time is expanding, you know, uh, close to the speed of light. And so light will basically never reach those two mm-hmm. points mutually. That's a pretty crazy theory. Basically, um, what this is trying to say is that, like, every second that we that we live, more and more points in the universe are getting too far away from us Mm -hmm. for their light to eventually reach us Mm -hmm. and so so it can be that our observable universe just has a restriction is pretty much yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. there's like a boundary layer Mm -hmm. where once it's like it's kind of like the event horizon but the opposite right Mm -hmm. once you cross that boundary you will just never be able to make contact with the earth ever again yeah, I know. <laughs> That's a pretty sad way to think yeah. about it. But, yeah, but also remember when we talk about the observable universe, we're kind of centering ourselves in it. So yeah. like the earth is kind of like the middle or the center point of this circle, this imaginary observable universe circle. What's pretty funny is that to understand basically the the inner workings of our solar system, we have to place ourselves uh, off axis basically of the center right we need to mm-hmm. put the sun in the middle which seemed very counterintuitive until we started seeing things like retrograde which we will get into uh mm-hmm. in a bit um but then once we start talking about 
scales like the observable universe, it actually makes more sense to put the Earth in the center of it because right now we don't know that, you know, if you go straight in one direction and straight in the other direction, you know, which, or I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's no definite middle point in mm -hmm. the universe. And so making making the middle point the earth is the only thing that makes sense for us because well obviously we're on the earth mm -hmm. so and and the thing is we don't even know truly how big the universe is that's the thing like it can be literally infinite for all we know but yeah. we will po possibly have no idea of ever finding out if the acceleration of the universe increases to a point where it's close to the speed of light. Yeah. And if that does exist, then we just, we're pretty much done for. We have no way of discovering these other galaxies or these other, who knows what's out there, you know? So there's so many things that can be undiscovered because of this problem. To be honest, I don't think we will ever be able to know the true size of the universe because people say like, oh, the universe is big. Well, you know, yeah, it's big, but it's even bigger it's than you could ever, ever, ever <laughs> imagine. Like getting to the nearest star, going at the speed of Voyager 2 right now would take us 80,000 years. And that's just to the nearest star. And that's only four light years away. Right. To get to the nearest galaxy, the, the nearest galaxy is what, like 2.4, 2.4 billion light years. I think so, yeah. Andromeda, 2.4 billion light years or, you know, more or less. That's the closest big galaxy, yeah. Yeah, and that would take us, you know, more more time than we could even imagine, okay? Exactly. So, one thing that's kind of interesting, I have the Kurzgesagt calendar, right? And one of the months is, I forget the official name, but uh, it's like you put human embryos in a spacecraft and you send them off to another galaxy. I think I've seen a video on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they're yeah. about like 18, 20 years away from their destination, then you um, fertilize you fertilize the embryo. And then... I, I don't know. <laughs> by the time they get to their destination, basically they're like 20 years old. And they can start mm -hmm. their lives, you know, millions of light years away from where they began their journey. And that's basically the only way that we're going to be able to populate the universe in the future. Well, I say that, <clears throat> I say it's the only way we're going to be able to do it, but at the same time, it's kind of like a caveman trying to describe Wi-Fi. You know, it, it's, exactly. not a, it's not exactly in my realm of capabilities to really describe to you how we're going to populate the galaxy or if that's ever going to happen. But uh, yeah, right now it's our best guess. Well, the best way actually, or at least in my mind, and I think actually could be a future, a viable future, are wormholes, Einstein, Rosen, Bridges. Because wormholes have already been mathematically proven by Albert Einstein and Nathan Rosen, namely the, Nath uh, the Einstein, Rosen, Bridge. We can postulate that it could be, could be hypothetically possible that we can create a space-time wormhole. Or at least for now, maybe just a space wormhole. Because we're still not too sure about the time specifics. But if a wormhole were to exist and we were supposedly somehow to create one, we would obviously need a lot of things that we don't even have right now. The yeah. biggest one being like not really antimatter, but like negative energy. 
The reason I'm saying that is because the number one reason a wormhole collapses, or at least mathematically, is because the throat of the wormhole, that means that the connection between yeah. the two mouths, they collapse. Now, they collapse because of the existence of gravity, right? And the only okay. way to kind of go around that and keep it open is to use something that goes against gravity, such as negative energy. Or, as mm. I mean, this is a very hypothetical dark energy there's actually a theory that i uh i had when uh, like two three years ago just for fun when i was just you know thinking about space and cool things where we could use if we can find a viable source of dark energy because dark energy is expanding the universe it's accelerating the expansion therefore we can think of it as an anti-gravitational properties and that's what dark energy entails so if we somehow can use that energy we can possibly prop up a wormhole create it and who knows our our limits will be well limitless you know i saw i saw this funny meme um it's basically like uh just a random person talking to an astrophysicist and the random person goes um dark matter is just uh like made up stuff that you need to explain the motion of galaxies and then the the astrophysicist says yeah go do your research <laughs> and then the astrophysicist <laughs> asks his professor what is dark matter and he goes yeah it's just made up stuff to explain the <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyways because that, that 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 is in fact true because when we saw galaxy rotation curves we started to notice that there was something that was just accelerating the rotation so, like, we did what all scientists do, just slap on a name and say, this is why it's happening, right? Yeah. So, dark matter was formed. So, I wanted to talk about something that, you know, if you're not into astronomy or, you know, the orbits of uh, the moon and stuff like that, you might not know. But, uh, you know, sometimes if you look into the sky at night, you will see that the moon is red. And, I don't know, maybe you think that it's uh it has something to do with like the red colors of like a sunset something with our atmosphere which you would actually be right it is it is related to that to why the sky turns red or orange during a sunset mm -hmm. but basically it's called a, a lunar eclipse and what happens is that the earth comes in front of the moon or comes in between the moon and the sun. the sun so this the the moon is being completely shaded um by the rays of the sun so you might be asking well okay if it's in the shade or in the shadow of the earth then why is it red so basically what happens is that the sunlight that basically hits the atmosphere of the earth on all sides and doesn't touch the earth Basically, it just runs through our atmosphere straight through. What happens is that it gets diffracted by by the, uh, you know the particles in the atmosphere and gets diffracted downwards and basically focuses on the moon. Mm -hmm. So if you if you you know like the uh, glass pyramids when you shed a beam through it and you yep. see all the colors, basically prism. yeah yeah prism. What happens is that the red light gets diffracted um the lowest because it, it has the lowest the largest, wavelength largest wavelength yeah yeah the the largest wavelength the lowest frequency mm -hmm. and the blue light goes upwards because it has the highest frequency and the lowest or 
Mm-hmm. Lowest yeah, the highest yeah. frequency, lowest wavelength. Um, yeah. Well, t- uh, technically, that process is known as uh, well, like how the sky turns blue. Not exactly lunar eclipses, but like how the t- sky turns blue or red during a sunset. Because I know you were mentioning that is known as Rayleigh scattering. And it's exactly what you just said. It's when the light hits the atmosphere and the particles pretty much diffract it. So especially yeah. when the sun is on sunset, because the light has to travel so much longer to reach our atmosphere. Because remember, sunset is when we're far away from the sun or like tilted the other way. So yeah. the light has to travel a lot longer, which therefore causes the longest wavelength to show, which is like the orange reddish like, you know, thing that we yeah. can see in the sky. So what I was going to say is that mm-hmm. because the red light gets diffracted downwards, basically you can imagine the light attacking the circumference of the earth head on. And then when it gets diffracted by the atmosphere, it gets focused because it gets diffracted inwards, right? It gets focused onto the moon. And that's why we see a red orange ish shift in the color of the moon. So that's what, mm-hmm. that's what happens. Oh, sorry. Is it, I, I was saying diffraction this whole time. I meant to say refraction. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Are you sure? It gets yeah. refracted? Yeah. Oh, wait, that ma- that actually does make a lot more sense. Oh, yeah, every yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually does make a lot more sense. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, yeah. That, that is true. One more thing I wanted to say ab- about the moon is, uh, you know, this is just like a, like a little fact, nothing too scientific. Um, if you ever want to know when, like what phase the moon is in, just remember that it you can read the phases like a book. So basically, when when the moon is it's a new moon, right? It's all dark. Then you open from the right to left, like you're opening a book, and then you close the book from right to left, right? So if if the moon is illuminated on its right side, it's the first quarter because you're opening the book halfway, and it's the first quarter of that phase yeah so that's how that's how you read the moon phases something else really interesting about the moon it actually is moving away from us every year by about four inches every year and Mm -hmm. the reason for this is something that i was so interested in early on that i i did a lot of research on this because it it's it's so cool to think that the moon which you know logically speaking anything in orbit should be coming towards the planetary body but in this case the moon is moving away now the reason for that is because of a tidal lock between the moon and the earth or a one-way tidal lock so what that means is so originally if if you actually see the moon something really cool if every night you will be able to see the exact same structures now why is that that is because the moon does not rotate on its axis because it is tidally locked with the earth. That means only one side, one face of the moon shows itself to the earth. That's why it's called the dark side of the moon, because literally no one has ever seen it in this or many generations before. Because originally when the moon was just created, the moon used to rotate and the earth used to rotate as well. And both of them used to rotate on their own axes. However, because the earth's gravitational pull is so much stronger the moon exhibited what is known as tidal bulging. That means instead of being a spherical shape, which was its original form, it started to bulge a little bit on its equator. And this tidal bulging is what caused one side of it, one side of the moon, to eternally lock itself to the earth. 
Now, because this one side is eternally locked to the earth, there's no more energy that the earth can take away from the moon because the moon has literally given itself up. It's only being taken from the earth on one side. Because of this, there is rotational energy when the earth, uh, sorry, when the moon rotates or revolves around the earth. And this energy, coupled with the fact that it's tidally locked with the earth, is what causes the moon to move away every year. And because of this, I think in, what, 200 or 500 million years or something, not that we'll ever be there to see it, but hmm. in approximately that time, I think the moon will be officially out of the Earth's orbit. Maybe not 500. I, I think it was something like billion years. I'm, I'm not actually sure. It's some huge number. That's got to be a funny sight. <laughs> like one day, one day the moon just gets smaller and smaller. And no, but the thing is, off. by that time, by that time, the sun would have already expanded to the point where the Earth is destroyed because the sun is going to be because it's sun. The sun is kind of in the middle of its life. And it has approximately, I think, 2 billion years remaining. So at the end of that, oh, yeah, then maybe the moon is going to move away at 2 billion years, something like that. Because I know for a fact that it's going to happen around the same time or after the sun has already pretty much engulfed the earth. So we're not really going to see a spectacular view, but we're going to die seeing it. So at least that's some satisfaction. So uh, one of the reasons why I mentioned lunar eclipses earlier is because they actually used a lunar eclipse to measure the diameter of the moon. So that's one thing that actually really intrigued me as a child, or I guess, you know, when I was an early teenager. I was wondering, like, how do you even calculate the diameter of the Earth or the mass of the Earth or the distance to the moon, or the distance to the sun? Like, no one has ever even been close to the sun. You can't even you can't even really imagine how big the sun really is, which is actually, for context, one million times bigger in volume than the Earth. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I was just really intrigued by that. And so after doing some research, I found that Aristarchus, back in the day, when there was a lunar eclipse... Um, what day? What day? Which year? I don't even know. 250 BC. <laughs> 250? Approximately 250 BC. Okay, so 250 BC. He's chilling in his mud hut or whatever. <laughs> and he sees he sees the moon. Right? This is during a lunar eclipse. And it's actually... So basically, what he did is he, he measured the moon's angular diameter, which is basically the angle from the Earth projected onto the moon. Right? How, how wide is it in terms of angles? Which is not that hard to do. But it's hard to do accurately. But, you know, he found a way to find some approximation and so he he uh, calculated that during a lunar eclipse the moon moved through the sky 2.5 times more than the moon's angular diameter and so basically by comparing that to the earth's shadow on the moon which you know during a lunar eclipse the, the moon is in the earth's shadow so you know, by that time, they already knew um, the size of the Earth. Uh, so by comparing the size of the Earth to the distance the moon traveled and the time it took and, you know, blah, 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 he was actually able to <clears throat> calculate the diameter of the moon, which is actually two-sevenths the Earth's diameter. So just an interesting fact. 
Yeah, the moon is actually a really cool thing just in general because also, interesting fact, another one, <laughs> is that uh, on the 1969 journey of the first man on the moon, they placed a set of retro reflectors on the moon such that, I mean, obviously, maybe Parker and I wouldn't be able to do it, but if you had sophisticated technology, you will be able to shoot a laser yeah. at these retro reflectors and measure it when the light comes back. Right, because retro reflectors are basically mirrors with yeah. like obviously more intensive physics because the point of it is to always give light back in the exact same direction it came in. So that's what retro reflectors do. They're little tiny prisms pretty much that make up this huge mirror. And mm. what you can see from when the light hits, let's say your photo detector, right? What you can tell is how far the moon is away from us. And this is a very simple, but obviously you need sophisticated equipment experiment. Don't you just take the speed yeah. of light and the, and the time it takes for the signal to come back? Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's what I said. Very simple experiment, but you do need sophisticated equipment. You need like yeah. a photo detector. You need a laser strong enough to actually go there. And using this, we have found out that, oh, well, number one, for all those people that don't believe that the moon landing happened. I was about to say... <laughs> Proof, exactly. Conclusive proof that there are man-made things on the moon. And therefore, the only explanation for that is that man has been on the moon. And this was installed on 1969. One thing that I've heard is that um, people think, like people who don't believe the moon landing happened, they believe that subsequent moon landings after the first one have happened. But just yeah. the first one didn't happen. I think you and I both know someone who believes this. Who? I don't know. I don't know if you know that person. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it on this okay, podcast. Okay, but I'll, okay. I'll tell just you. tell me after. <laughs> but um, yeah. I was I was gonna say the fact that there are man-made objects on the moon doesn't really explain that the first moon landing happened or not. Mm -hmm. But basically, it's documented that they put those reflectors there so you know that should be pretty much enough proof but anyways there's a lot a lot of proof like that, that you know you can use to convince yourself that the moon landing actually happened and at the same time you know i'm not going to go too deep into this because it is you know a waste of our time <laughs> to <laughs> explain why the moon landing happened but all I want to say is that it's easier to literally go to the moon than to fake a moon landing and have and have nobody like say a word about it. But okay. There's this uh there's this really good episode on YouTube um of I I forgot like the name but it's from shoot I completely forgot the channel. It's from College something. I'm I'm not too sure. It's like a really funny channel but like this College part humor? Yeah, College Humor, exactly. And they have like this, not this separate channel, but this kind of this playlist where I forgot the guy's name, but this one guy pretty much disproves, you know, things oh, that right, we right. think. Oh, right, right, I've seen exactly. that. Exactly. And in this video, he pretty much talks about how faking the moon landing would not only be more expensive, but so much more inefficient than actually simply going to the moon at yeah. that time. Obviously, right now with the technology we have, Photoshop, Video Shop, stuff like that, you know, you anyone can pretty much go on the moon if you just add a few special effects. But at that time, in 1969, with the technology we had, to create those images that we saw of those yeah. people on the moon would be so much more difficult than, as Parker said, just going on the moon. 
Yeah, and the picture that I'm going to add as the thumbnail of this episode is actually the very first picture of the Earth rising from the moon. And Oh, I've seen that picture. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, to recreate that picture in 1969 would be, you know, to the, to the detail that it has, you know, to this day, mm-hmm. it would be very, very difficult, you know. Also, an interesting thing about the moon, uh, I remember when I was talking about the dark side and how no one's really yeah. seen it, the first person to have seen the dark side on the moon. Now, unfortunately, with Apollo 11, whenever we think about, you know, Apollo 11, we think of what, Neil Armstrong, maybe Buzz Aldrin. Someone we never think about, unfortunately, is Michael Collins who is also a very respectable astronaut, but he had to stay in orbit around the moon and man, and man the control center, or the command pod, pretty much. And what he did, he was the first person in history of humankind to look or see the dark side of the moon. Because while he was waiting for his fellow compadres who were chilling on the surface of the moon, he was taking an orbit around it. While doing so, he obviously passed by the dark side which is also, as I said, one of the big reasons why Michael Collins is very famous in the astronomy and, you know, physics world. But unfortunately, no one really knows him as the third astronaut on Apollo 11. You're you're trying to hype up his job as the commander (laughs) on the spaceship. But any day, any day of my entire life, I would rather be on the moon than orbiting around. You have to understand, you have to understand. Someone had had to do it. Exactly. Someone had to be there. So yeah. it was either him or someone else. Someone else would be there instead of him. I respect it a lot exactly. because he, you know, someone had to do it. And he, I don't know if he was assigned the job or he volunteered to do it. But, you know, just mm-hmm. being all right there. <laughs> you're right above yeah, the know, moon. It's but so you, sad. Like, just imagine you seeing your friends. you seeing like your best buds going down. They're, to they're the doing backflips on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're just chilling in your spacecraft. And, yeah. and also, also. Another interesting thing, while he was on the dark side of the moon, because there was not any major communications, he was the loneliest man in the universe at that point when he was at the dark side of the moon because he had no communication, completely dark, and he was all alone. So I think Vsauce made a video on this or because I'm remembering it from somewhere. I'm getting a deja vu while saying this. But mm. he was the loneliest man in the universe for that time period when he was in the well, dark side of the moon. Sad thing right. to think about, but it's true. So I wanted to talk about retrograde, but I'm afraid we don't have that yeah, much time we, left. We, don't. we are coming up on about 31 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I know we will definitely have to make a part two to the astronomy 100%. episode. There are so many things we have to talk about. Yeah, I absolutely loved this topic. Um, yeah. So yeah, this has been episode 12 of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I am Ray, and thank you, and see you soon. See you guys.